Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. For ages, policymakers have been pushing earlier education for children. In some of the previous studies, these have been found to be very helpful for families that are disadvantaged. But yet the research on them has been short-lived since states have taken on the role of overseeing these programs. Of course, if a program can help a family or child, it should be available. But what if it doesn't? Joining me today is Dr. Kelly Durkin, whose career focuses on children's education and how we can help children's learning. Working in the state of Tennessee, she's able to assess their statewide pre-K program to see how these children fare in the long term, and most recently published the findings of her most recent analysis. With a focus on what is happening, but also what might be done in the future, her insights are much needed for all who care about the education of children. I am so pleased to have with me today Dr. Kelly Durkin. Dr. Durkin is a research assistant professor in the Department of Teaching and Learning at Peabody College at Vanderbilt University. Her research focuses on evaluating educational programs and investigating how ideas from cognitive and developmental psychology can be applied in educational settings to improve learning. Throughout her projects, Dr. Durkin has used multi-level models, instrumental variable estimation, meta-analytic techniques, and coding of student explanations and classroom videos to answer her research questions. Her recent research appears in Developmental Psychology and Early Childhood Research Quarterly and has been presented at multiple domestic and international conferences. Today, we're going to be talking about her new paper, Examining the Effects of State-Funded Pre-K Programs on Student Outcomes. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) So we're going to get into this paper because it was kind of mind-blowing what you found here, but... Before we get there, I need to know, how did you become interested in studying education and and all of these developmental cognitive aspects going into it? But where did this come from? Yeah, so it started when I was in um, undergraduate college. Uh, I thought I was going to be a math major. I went in thinking that. And then I was looking, and I love math. I still love math. So I was looking at what some of my friends who are math majors were doing after they graduated and none of them were jobs I was super excited about doing. So I thought, wait a minute, um, maybe I don't want to do this. And so then um, I took a class on learning in the psychology department with Dr. Jernstead that just like changed my whole life. Um, just thinking about how people were learning, the different ways you can learn. It was really exciting to me. And so then I worked in his lab and started taking all these other classes and then from there, graduate school, and have just ever since been really excited about um, how people learn and the settings in which they learn and how we can think about making education better for everybody. I have to say, I started in computer science as well. So it was a little, you know, after many long nights in a computer lab, I was like, I'm not sure this is really for me. I think (laughs) (laughs) I still love thing. Um, so I, I totally hear you on the math and I love math too. So I hear you on that. And yeah, and this way I still get to study it, change it like, cause I'm studying math education a lot of the time. So I still get to think about math. There you go. So you've got it all worked in there. So I actually have a quick question on this just cause you have young kids too, as I know, yes. were you like me and subjecting your kids to all sorts of little experiments on how they learn and what they do and, and everything? Is that, yes. is it just me I, or are yours there too? No, I completely did that. And I, you know, remember things from my developmental psychology classes that I try out on them. And then my um, husband got a book. Gosh, I wish I could remember the name of it. It was great. It was about, you know, experiments on your baby, but they were all like cute little developmental psychology things, nothing scary. But yeah, so I would go through during my maternity leave 
and be trying out little experiments on them at different stages to see what they could do and where they were. It was fun. Yeah, it really it, yep. it's quite a blast. I feel like that's like one of the joys of having a kid when you've done that academic background is like, yes. okay, what can I do to I want to see this in person, all those videos and learning. I want to see it in practice and go from there. So, okay. So now to pre-K, because this is really what we're talking about. And yeah. I, I'm going to ask you, and I hope you don't mind, because I know you have a wealth mm -hmm. of information on this in the papers, but I want to do a bit of background for people, because yeah. I think there's both understanding what's happening um, in the U.S., because not everyone, you know, I'm in Canada, and mm -hmm. it's different programs, different things. So if we start on the background to this work on pre-K, um, I think a lot of people know if they know anything about the U.S., they are becoming much more prominent. They seem to kind of be popping mm -hmm. up everywhere. They seem to be treated as something that's essential for kids. And this probably isn't just the US. I hear it everywhere. People saying, mm -hmm. you know, parents getting told, oh, no, the answer to all your child's woes is put them into a pre-K program and life will be better. How did this start? What was the push that led to this idea that these programs are not only um, um, good to have as options, but almost necessary. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it was, at least in the U.S., uh, I, I don't know as much internationally, uh, but in the U.S., there were two big landmark studies, um, the Absidarian Project and the Perry Preschool Projects, that uh, specifically looked at uh, kids from low-income families, and they saw really big effects and saw some long-lasting effects, and these were done in the 60s and 70s. And so people saw these big effects and thought, wow, look at these amazing things happening for some of these kids and families. We should really be thinking more about early childhood education and pre-K. And then I think what happened from there is um, those programs look really different from a lot of the programs we have now. Uh, they were much more um, intensive. They offered sometimes a lot more services than we typically see in pre-K programs now. They were often the whole work day instead of just like a half day or a school day. Um, the, I think it was Absidarian offered care from infancy through to kindergarten, um, which is not what most, you know, Head Start and pre-K programs are doing. They don't start at infancy. So I think that people saw this and it looked really great, but it's also really expensive to do at that level because uh, they offered a lot. And I think they were good programs and are good programs or something. But so um, I think because of that, people saw that and thought, oh, this is something we could do that would really help kids and families, especially kids from low-income families, let's let's do it. And um, there have been some studies to show effects of positive effects of pre-K, but we really suffer from a lack of studies that have a really rigorous scientific design. And so that's kind of where we are now and, and the work that's being done now. But so I think there were these studies also besides Absidarian Period School that showed some good effects. But a lot of times they do on um, this thing we call post-hoc matching where they would look at the kids in third grade and say, okay, who went to pre-K and who didn't? Um, and then they would try to match them on the things they could like race and gender and age and that kind of thing. Um, but when you're doing that, then there's a lot of reasons people may not send their kids to pre-K and that parental motivation and those kind of factors you're not controlling for at all in those kind of post hoc matching studies. The third variable effect, which is a big one mm -hmm. that I often talk to families about and everything, is we really do. Those are those are crucial, like those are crucial variables to think about. The motivations of what drives people to do it. It's um, it really is something that needs to be considered more. So, in your paper, you're looking specifically at a pre-K program in Tennessee. Yes. 
can you tell us a bit, like, what is this program? Is it Head Start? Is it like, that's the big one we all know of? Is it something else? And how good is it? I think that's kind of one of those questions. We all want to know, we look at research, if it's not a good program. Yeah. So it's not Head Start, although they do occasionally partner with Head Start, especially in some of our more rural counties in Tennessee, I think. Um, but essentially, it's the state funded program. Most of the classrooms are actually housed in public elementary schools. I think around 93% or something like that are in public elementary schools. Some though are in kind of childcare centers, or like I said, partnering with Head Starts or other um, community partners, but most of them are in the elementary schools. And um, I think it's also important to point out because it's the nature of longitudinal research. Um, the, the kids in our sample are now in high school actually. And so they were attending this program in 2009, 2010. And as a result of our findings, which we'll talk about later, so I don't wanna jump around too much, but because our findings were not positive, they were negative, um, in third grade, they made a bunch of changes to the program. And so in 2016, they enacted this Tennessee Pre-Quake Quality Act where they made a bunch of um, improvements to the program. And so I think it is important to acknowledge Tennessee, I, I, I think to give them a lot of credit, they did this evaluation work, they saw that you know things were not happening how they wanted and they've made some changes and it's an open question what, what effects the current program is having. Um, I would love for them to do another evaluation. I think it would be so great. Um, but. Uh, so that's just, I think, something to really acknowledge. It's a program that typically, there's a lot of variability because it goes across the state and you have classrooms in urban places and rural places and suburban places. And it's, it's you know, such a big scaled up program. Um, but, you know, typically, I think it's a pretty usual pre-K program here where there's a lot of focus on academic skills um, and those kinds of things. And, you know, often running the course of a school day, but it had, you know, you had to have a ratio of one to 10. So they typically have two teachers in a classroom of 20 or fewer kids. Um, the lead teacher had to have a bachelor's degree um, and certification in early childhood for the second teacher. Uh, you know, they had a set of curricula they could choose between and things like that. So, I mean, I think they had a lot of the structural things in place and they've improved some of those too since then. Um, but the program meets nine or it used to meet nine of the 10 um, benchmarks that this early childhood association is association put out for a high quality program. So I, I think, I don't know if that answers your question. Like, I think it's it's a kind of what I would think is fairly typical yeah. scaled no, up program at that level. It does, it does. I guess I just also want to get, because I think so many people get caught up in thinking about these programs as being um, inherently lower quality, right? And mm -hmm. and they're not, they're not going to be a Montessori program. They're not right. going to be a forest school. They're not going to be these. How do we think about this in terms of, because I guess I want to frame it. How are people going to think about this in terms of their preschool programs? Like, are we thinking about the neighborhood preschool program is probably pretty close, but if you're going into, well, obviously a forest school is going to be very different because you're not even in a classroom. <laughs> um, but in terms of more indoor ones, like a Montessori, a Waldorf, a, um, oh, there's that other one, the name eludes me now, but, um, you know, these kind of more specialized programs. How do we think these, these kind of relate to that experience? Yeah, it's a really good question. And there's, the thing with this that's hard is there's so much variability. And we didn't collect observation data on these specific classrooms that the kids were in as part of this study in this paper. But in a, a similar time in other classrooms in the state, um, our team did some classroom observations. And there's just there's huge amounts of variability in what they're doing. Uh, but a lot of the classrooms do have, and oh, I think it's also, should have mentioned this earlier, uh, the, to qualify for the program, you have to be at a certain income level. You have to um, essentially, similar to qualifying for free and reduced price lunch, 
um, or have some other risk factors. So it's not it's not a universal program. It's what we call a targeted program where to qualify, um, you have to meet that kind of income benchmark. So I think that's good to acknowledge too. Um, and I think that kind of goes to what you said about the early programs really targeting yes, kind of a lower, like trying to, to boost up people who might need that bit of extra support for stuff. Yeah. And so I think a lot of the focus though is on kind of um, kindergarten readiness and what does that mean? And I think sometimes, especially for children from lower income families, that could mean like getting them these academic skills that everyone, you know, I think agrees is something you sh should learn. Like we all need to learn the alphabet, um, but it's it's something that everyone is going to learn. And we can talk about that more when we talk about the results of the paper. But I think comparing this program to like a Montessori or a Waldorf kind of model, um, there is going to probably be more um, inside time, more whole group instruction time than you would see in those programs. Although we've been seeing even in the last 10 years ago, a colleague was telling me Montessori programs are even shifting. Um, she had some kids from Montessori, come, they're coming home with worksheets, which is not the typical Montessori model. So I think there is this really heavy emphasis that's permeating kind of all the programs now, not all, but a lot of the programs now um, on these school kindergarten readiness skills um, and, and what that means. Yeah, I can't wait to get into that because, mm -hmm. I mean, I have my own opinions, but they are just opinions. Um, yeah. You're the one with the data to back it all up. <laughs> so we'll get there. So let's actually get to the data. So yep. um, as you've kind of mentioned, the short form is that you didn't find any evidence of positive effects in this those who attended pre-K. And well, if, we did initially. Yeah, and that's what I want to get to. So mm -hmm. we're yeah. talking about, yeah, the most recent is the follow-up. Yes. Yes. So yes, 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 yes. let's start with... Um, yeah, I, I guess let's start with actually this trajectory because you have pre-K, you have findings in, in kindergarten, you have findings in grade three and findings in grade six. Can you walk us through kind of what, what are you seeing across this trajectory of time here? Yeah, so I think one thing that makes our study unique is that it's a we're looking at a statewide scaled up program. So like I said, you know, these scaled up programs can look really different from a, a smaller program where you have kind of more control over what's going on. It's a fewer number of classrooms. Um, so in a scaled up program, and it was a randomized control chart. So this is what's kind of considered the gold standard for evaluation research. And so essentially what we did is we got um, the list from all the programs in the state where there were fewer spots available than parents who wanted their kids to attend. So not everybody was gonna get in. And so we took that list and we just jumbled it up and put the kids' names in a random order. And then the programs would go down that list until they ran out of spots. So it was making it kind of truly random who got into the program and, and who didn't. And occasionally you would have cases where a kid who wasn't assigned to go got in or vice versa, a kid who was assigned to go didn't show up and didn't end up going. Um, but we look at that in two different ways. Um, but so we have this random assignment, which helps control for this kind of third variable you talked about to the extent that we can, because all these parents were motivated and wanted to sign their kids up for pre-K. They had the resources to get their kids to and from the pre-K program. Um, and so that's all balanced because they were just randomly, you know, put in this order on the list. So we have what we call our, our VPK, voluntary pre-K, um, is the name of the program. So we have our kind of kids that went to pre-K group and then our control group that didn't go or weren't assigned to go. And so we saw that immediately after the pre-K year, the kids who had gone to the pre-K program um, had better academic cognitive skills and they were rated better by their teachers at the beginning of kindergarten with these kind of school readiness, um, work-related skills, being able to um, get through tasks and be conscientious and that kind of thing. We saw that at the end of kindergarten, the control kids had essentially caught up on all those things. So the groups didn't look different anymore at the end of kindergarten. 
um, on, on a subsample that we had. So we have a sample of 3,000 kids and a subsample of around 1,000 kids um, that we were able to get more extensive data on before they did state testing. So when I'm talking about the immediately after pre-K effects, um, that was our subsample of 1,000. So then we were also able to test them in first and second grade as well, and they didn't look any different um, in this subsample. Then when we go to third grade where we got the state testing data, we could start looking at our full sample of 3,000 and we actually started seeing negative effects on the um, state achievement tests and on disciplinary offenses. So kids who had gone to the state pre-K program actually did um, a bit worse on the state achievement tests and they had were more likely to have been suspended than the kids who didn't go. We're talking about grade three suspensions. Yes, yes. And so the way we track that, so fortunately there's not a ton of them, which is good. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but so because, you know, I think in kindergarten, we had four kids who got suspended in our sample um, for Wait, the 3,000. People yeah, get so suspended in kindergarten? Yes. in kindergarten? I mean, they're just little babies. I know. So it does happen. So what the way we ended up doing that is we've um, been looking at sus these suspensions cumulatively. Because, I mean, now that the students later into middle school and high school, suspensions are unfortunately starting to become more common. Um, which I think you would probably expect. But in these younger grades where you fortunately don't have a ton of them, um, we would just say, did you ever get suspended, you know, in kindergarten? Did you ever get suspended in kindergarten or first grade? So with the third graders, also, did you ever get suspended in kindergarten through third grade at some point? And so the kids who had gone to pre-K were more likely to have been suspended at some point in that window. Um, that's insane. That's just yeah. like, wow. Okay, so yeah, and, and I should say too, in third grade, it's the things they're getting suspended for, where we're seeing a difference in the groups is more, um, it's what we call school rule violations in Tennessee. So these are things like talking back to the teacher and not following the dress codes, things that, you know, in the in the broader outside world, you're not going to get in trouble for as opposed to we differentiate that from major offenses, which are things like bringing a weapon to school, fighting those things that are, you know, more like the outside world's definition of offenses. Okay, which is good to know, because I think that's actually a really important distinction. Because when we yeah. think about this, it is, you think about these suspensions, and okay, if they're suspending kids for not following a school dress code, I'm not thinking there's a problem with the kid here. I'm thinking right. there's a problem with your rules is there pertained as opposed to, like you said, I'm imagining weapons, violence, this. So it is right. quite different, which is very good to know. So thank you. Um, yeah. So then if then we kept following them and looking at them in sixth grade, um, we see the same trend and it's gotten a little bit bigger. So there's a, an even more bigger, more negative effect on um, the state achievement test scores and they are still more likely to have had an offense. And actually in sixth grade, we start also seeing differences in significant differences in the major offenses. So those things we were talking about, you think about like fighting, a lot of them were fighting and bullying, but so we were seeing more instances of, of those kinds of um, suspensions in sixth grade too. So I wanna talk about all of these, like we wanna get into the nuance here because I think that's really the heart of this is what on earth is happening. But yeah. I do want to clarify um, a little thing here because you had two different analyses going on. And mm -hmm. I think it's really important for people to understand when we talk about you know, a randomized control trial, most people do an intent to treat analysis, mm -hmm. which is based on how you actually have separated your groups, regardless of what groups often do. And people who have listened to, to other stuff I've done. I've talked about this with respect to other studies on sleep and this and that, because you can't, you know, truly randomize what people mm -hmm. do. And this is another case where you can split it up, but I'm sure some of the families who didn't make it into preschool found 
other programs or made other arrangements. And so you also track that and then did the actual effects of the treatment. So you have two different analyses. How do the results from these analyses actually match up or, or don't match up? Yeah. So the pattern, so like you mentioned, we have this intent to treat analysis, which is what kind of is the most relevant in some ways from a policy perspective, because you can kind of determine whether a, a spot is is uh, offered to a kid or not, but you can't, at least right now, we don't have mandatory pre-K. So you can't, you know, demand that they go to your program, right? And so that intent to treat is kind of thought of sometimes as the most policy relevant way of looking at it. Um, but then for a lot of education folks, this is what we call the treatment on treated. So this looks at, did you actually end up in a classroom kind of regardless of what you were assigned to do? Or did you end up not in a VPK classroom? Um, and so the pattern of the results looks the same um, across both of those kinds of ways of looking at it for our group. And they actually are a little bit bigger for the treatment untreated. So they're the same negative effects and a little bit bigger um, when doing this analysis, looking at, did you actually attend the pre-K program versus not? And so that bigger effect, just to help people understand, really is saying that, you know, some of the dampening in the intent to treat was due to people not actually doing the treatment, right? Of not, do, whereas if you actually were to put, as you mentioned, kind of forcing everyone to go, your effects would be even strong, more negative, but also stronger. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, this also just quickly, this reminded me too, I think it's important to point out because this is different from some other ways studies have been designed. Our control group, you know, didn't go to VPK, but they then did a variety of things instead. So we're not comparing a group that went to the state pre-K program to a group that stayed at home. Um, the majority of our kids stayed at home. We think, you know, from surveying them around 60-ish percent were home with a family friend or neighbor. But then the remainder did end up in some kind of Head Start program or private pre-K program or a mix. So I think sometimes people want to take our results and make implications of going to a center-based pre-K versus not. And we can't totally make that distinction because our control group is, is mixed. They just didn't go to the statewide program. Okay. That's good to know. Now, if they went to a Head Start, is that not a state program too? Or no. Is it different? So, okay. so they occasionally, like I said, the, they'll kind of do a mix of funding in a classroom. So funding can be partially funded by the state and partially funded by Head Start and then kind of has to meet the requirements of both programs. Um, but that is not the majority of cases in Tennessee. So um, generally, these statewide programs are not Head Start classrooms. Okay. And they differ because Head Start ha also has a different set of requirements and a lower income threshold. So there are, there are families that qualify for um, the statewide program that don't qualify for a Head Start. That is very good to know. Um, so let's talk about this. So we have this trend. Um, contrary to what I think everyone was obviously clearly hoping for with yes. the program that you've implemented for everyone, you've made things worse. Uh, not you, obviously. You have yeah. not made anything worse. <laughs> but the program and the powers that be that have this now have data saying, this is not good for kids. So what, like, what do you think it is that's driving this trend downward over time too? Cause it's also the fact that it's not, it starts out positive and it's getting worse as you go. Like grade six is worse than grade three. Um, so what is it about the program that you think is leading to this? Or is it really something protective about not attending a program here? 
Yeah, and I mean, and that's exactly the question, right, that we've been trying to do other analyses on and put some more nuance on and figure out, like, what's going on? Because as you said, these would not be the results anyone would kind of expect or hope for um, when those work started out. And so we've done a number of things to try to, to figure out what's going on. And, and I have to say, some of this we can only speculate on because um, we weren't in all of these classrooms seeing what was going on on a daily basis. Um, but we have some ideas that we can talk about. So um, one of them is that uh, my colleague, Alvin Pierman, who's at Stanford, um, did this work looking at what's called the sustaining environments effect. So seeing, okay, does it matter what happens to you after you leave the pre-K classroom? And um, he has a paper with other folks from, I think, 2020, where he talks about how if you end up in a hot, what's considered a high quality elementary school with at least one high quality teacher, if you were in the treatment group that went to pre-K, you do better than the kids who didn't. So if you have a kind of high quality environment after pre-K, that may help sustain some of those initial benefits we saw from pre-K. Um, the thing that was most striking, I think, in that work for us was that only 12% of our sample of low-income students got that kind of environment. So only around one in 10 went to a high quality school with at least one high quality teacher. I'm sorry, I have to understand how you're setting the bar for high quality. Mm -hmm. You're saying that 90% approximately of your students went to a school that, so does it have to be both the school is rated high quality and they have the high quality teacher? Yes. So he looked at them and if you just had one, it wasn't enough to kind of sustain the initial benefits from pre-K. You had to have both. And the way those things are measured, what we were kind of colloquial calling a high quality school are schools that are meeting their um, yearly benchmarks as outlined by the state on state testing and things. Um, for a high quality teacher, they had to have um, a certain rating on the state teacher observation system, which actually tends to skew a little positive. Um, so you're, there are more people getting higher scores than not. So what it's telling us is that, you know, these students from low income households are maybe not surprisingly, but sadly ending up, you know, in probably lower resource schools with, you know, less resourced and maybe less experienced teachers that are rating lower on this scale. Um, and I can see that makes sense from the perspective of having to sustain something positive. What I don't see is how it then interacts with this negative to become more negative, that this little point in time of potential positivity would somehow get worse with time. Yes. And so that's one thing we've been thinking about, again, all speculation, but thinking about if, if I'm in a classroom um, that's emphasizing what we call constrained skills. So these are more basic skills, things that have a limit to them. For example, learning the alphabet. There are only 26 letters, you know, in the English alphabet. There's only 26 things you can learn there. And once you have them, you have them. You know, there are only so many colors you're going to learn in school. You know, you're going to learn your numbers. You're going to learn the shapes and uh, shape identification. So these kind of more basic constrained skills um, can sometimes really be the emphasis in, in pre-K programs. And so if I'm going to a program and that's what I'm experiencing, a lot of learning about these basic skills over and over, sometimes in more whole group instructional time than you would probably like for this age group. 
Then I go to kindergarten and we know from some other work, there can often be redundancy in kindergarten from that pre-K. So now I'm in kindergarten, I'm learning those same basic skills over again. I'm maybe starting to get bored. I may be starting to have a more negative experience of school. And so again, just a hypothesis we maybe have is like, if you start out, maybe that pre-K experience and then going into that subsequent, very again, academic skills focused kindergarten that we typically have now, maybe it's almost making you more sensitive to your school environment. So you can maybe have more opportunity to thrive if you're in a high quality school with a high quality teacher, but maybe making you more sensitive to if you don't experience that, now I'm just having a more negative experience generally with school um, that's going on. So that's one of our ideas. That's no, and it it actually kind of fits. I was talking just recently to Jay Belsky on, and we talked a bit about you know the differential susceptibility mm -hmm. was what we were really focused on. But obviously, some of that extends down to his work on on school programs, childcare, etc. Yeah. So that idea of suddenly being more susceptible to that negative environment certainly makes sense if part of it is these constrained skills. Um, but I think, you know, part of it goes to me. So, okay, you have that hypothesis. Before mm -hmm. I jump ahead to something else, <laughs> I want to hear, is that, do you think that's the likely one or are there other things that you think should be explored as well? Yeah. So we think that may be part of it. Um, another, because I don't think any of these are necessarily mutually exclusive. Another piece of it that may be at play is, um, you know, when you have this center-based care where you have 20 kids with two adults trying to manage things, especially if you're doing, you know, kind of more academic skill, which I don't really love the term because I think there's lots of skills that are academic that don't get categorized that way, like self-regulation and learning to control your emotion. Like that's a necessary skill to be successful academically. Um, so, but it's these more kind of what are traditionally thought of as academic skills, right? Um, so if I'm a teacher and I'm trying to figure out how to manage these 20 little bodies, a lot of times I think you get a lot, and this is true in other center-based programs too, and we've seen similar negative effects on behavior from center-based learning, which is that like my kids are in center-based learning. I'm not trying to say we should get rid of center-based learning. I need center-based learning. Um, but so in a center-based setting, sometimes if you have two adults really trying to exert a lot of control and manage behaviors and manage bodies, and we have some, you know, work from observations, you sometimes get a lot of behavior disapproving um, language, which you like stop, no. So, I mean, some teachers can really whip out a lot of those per minute. Um, so, which again, I get, I find I do it with my own children. I catch myself doing it all the time. Where it's like, stop, don't do that. Don't touch her, get down. And it's like, oh gosh, in that span of 30 seconds, I just said like 20 behavior disapproving comments, yikes. Um, but so if you have that going on, I think that can affect kids' ability to self-regulate and, and learn to control their behavior themselves. And maybe um, this is a really important window of time during early childhood to get to explore that and be able to learn to control your own behavior and kind of um, bump up against other kids in playing with them and getting that chance. And so maybe it's the case that if you're in a classroom where there is that kind of adult exerted control, Compared to kids, if they are in other settings or home-based, you know, situations where they are having more ability to kind of do their own thing because there's not 20 other kids in the room, um, maybe that's a reason we're seeing some of the behavioral differences we see um, because of that issue of, of learning those skills earlier, maybe in other settings. Um, and, and I think there are ways to foster them in center-based care. And um, we just need to think more and work more on that. So... You kind of just touched on where I, I wanted to go, and it's 
there's so many questions I have. I want to get to the effects of SES because I think it's really important mm -hmm. to talk about and it was something. But before we get there, I think we need to talk about this idea of the academic program at this young age. Like, is this what is best for kids? We know from a developmental perspective, they're really at a prime age for more social and emotional learning. Um, and I know they can learn these skills, these hard academic skills of numbers and letters and everything. But you know, their brain is ripe to pick up on on social interactions and how we regulate and and experiencing different emotions and learning, you know, theory of mind. You know, they don't even have a fully functioning theory of mind, yet we're focusing on these facts as opposed to trying to understand the world around them. So I think one of the biggest questions for me is we can talk about, you know, later effects and and what might, you know, mitigate some of these things with other schooling, but is the program the right type for this age to even begin with? And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that because I, mm -hmm. I clearly I think it's not. I, I think that our our big academic focus is wrong. I, I think there is so much more, like you talked about emotion regulation, kids being able to learn how to navigate conflict amongst one another, learn how to um, engage in more creative play and use their imagination and build on worlds with one another to learn how to experience and understand other people's emotions, how to offer empathy to others. These are the things that I think they're ripe for. And so this focus on all of these, even the alphabet, like we said, they're going to learn the alphabet. Like at some point it's coming in, even if it is in kindergarten, they don't need to be prepared for that. They need to be prepared for the, the social world around them, right? Yeah, and I think it's even, you know, things that maybe aren't thought of at this age, so the social world around them, and then also what we call these unconstrained skills that, you know, we also know are related to academics. So things like problem solving and vocabulary and these things that are, we call unconstrained because they're this big space. There's not going to be a limit. There's not only 26 words you learn for your vocabulary, right? It's this big, expansive world. Problem solving, you know, in math is this much richer thing than just learning your numbers. And of course, we need to learn our numbers. That's necessary. But it's, like you said, everyone's going to figure it out for the most part. Kids are going to learn that. So if we want to have some longer lasting effects, maybe it is tapping into these more unconstrained skills, social, emotional learning, problem solving, vocabulary, and those kinds of things. And what research suggests might be best for fostering those are the kind of guided play learning interactions we can have. So finding this, it's it's not this, you know, direct instruction, even with, and my kids, they have cute songs about how to write each letter and that kind of thing. But it's this very teacher directed thing where they're teaching you the song and you're singing it back to them. There's not a lot of child initiated learning there. Right. And so that's not the best for learning. And then also complete open free play is not the best for learning where it's just, there are toys out, you go play. I'm going to kind of behavior manage as the teacher, but otherwise I'm just kind of hanging around. Um, that's not the best either. There's a meta-analysis that just came out um, that really supports this idea too, that guided play, the sweet spot in the middle where kids are playing and they're doing these play-based learning, but the, the teacher is guiding them. And I think those kinds of guided play interactions where you have this great opportunity to foster some of these social emotional skills, these broader things like problem solving and vocabulary. Um, I think my daughter's class a few weeks ago had a really nice example of it. Um, she's in pre-K right now. They, it was raining a lot. So they went outside and they decided to dig a river. And she was telling me about it, but putting my little developmental psychologist hat on, I could tell what the teacher was doing when she was telling me what she had done. You know, they built this river and they built a dam. And in that, 
They learned what dams were. They talked about dams and how they work. They worked together to decide where they were going to build the river and plan it, figure out how they were going to dig it with different tools. They talked about which part of the river was longer or shorter. So they're doing some map measurements. So, I mean, so this, there was this really rich interaction going on in this activity. Um, I think if a lot of people walked by, they'd be like, oh, there are kids digging in the dirt. Okay. But if you actually look at what was going on there, the teacher was guiding this discussion that the kids were having and the kids were participating and talking to one another in. So I, I think it's this idea of that. Those are the kinds of interactions that are probably going to help. And, and in those, you can embed some of those, you know, more basic skills. I think where my daughter currently has most learned to write her letters and that kind of thing is when they've been like, oh, let's make a sign for the store we're pretending to set up. So she'll write letters with the teacher's help getting ready for that. So she's getting some of those basic skills, but it's embedded in this richer context of guided play. I'm very curious because the way you just described guided play is much more my idea of the more free play, right? Because although uh -huh. you're doing it, it's not. So I'm very curious about how in the research they're defining the free play to have that negative effect because and, and I'm just going to quickly go to you know other countries where we look at you know Finnish educational models very early it mm -hmm. is what we would consider they consider it free play yes. based kids are outdoors they're doing exactly what you're talking about on their own there's inside they're picking which station they want to go to and do stuff and teachers may come and offer some insights into oh yeah there's a dam there's this but it's not I think the way I've always perceived guided is still very teacher oriented towards, you know, no, no, no. Now it's time to do X and we're all going to do X and learn. And it's a little different if you're outside where it's an activity that can have like building a, a, a river and stuff where someone mm. may just focus on the river digging and you may yeah. be doing the dam, but they may just zone out and be like, I don't care about the dam right now. I care about making, can I make it deeper? Can I do mm -hmm. something else that kind of triggers this? So can you quickly let me know what is this free play that they're talking about that isn't good in the long run? Yeah. So I think that's a really important point because it's this thing we often get into a trouble with across a lot of domains where we're using the same word to mean different things or we're calling different things the same word. Um, so yes. So in this case, in this circle, um, free play really is this kind of like the kids are playing. It's, it's actually often what people negatively conceptualize daycare as to the point where like I've known some daycares that have changed their name to school and they want the kids to call it school instead of daycare because daycare can sometimes get this bad image of this kind of free play that I'm talking about where it really is there's like a room full of toys and the kids are playing and stuff but the teacher's really just there to be like don't hit each other don't it's kind of what I think oftentimes like recess with older kids is in elementary school where like run around and do stuff but like the playground monitors out there just to make sure no one gets hurt or if a kid needs help with something but they're not actually doing that kind of offering of, you know, in, in instructional kind of related things. They're just kind of there to make sure everything's safe and make sure. And so we sometimes will see that in classrooms where I think maybe the messaging has been taken up of like, oh, we don't want to be doing this really heavily teacher-led direct instruction. But then they swing to this where there's like no teacher involvement and it's just an open, complete play all the time with the teacher just kind of there, if that makes sense. It does. It's kind of, I, I started homeschooling my daughter. She's now in an online school, but it was, it's what you're describing with the teacher and the dam was exactly kind of what I viewed as, no, my job is to see what she's doing and then come in with Yes. A little bit of something like, oh, look, she's playing with X. Let's let's see what happens. Like, I'll give my son as an example. He had um, 
he was very into playing store for a while. Mm-hmm. And I could have, I did not go towards making signs or doing this because he was really not interested in it. And yeah. I could see like it was, but he kept doing, we would, I would have all the, the table set up. He would come and buy for random amounts of money. Didn't care about, you know, I wasn't going to make him do the math. I was really trying mm-hmm. to see what are you trying to learn from this? And we'd go through it and every time, okay, thank you very much. Have a nice day. And then he would sell and I would go and buy and then back and forth and back over and over and over. And, over. <laughs> um, and I, I, I didn't, push but I kept saying I'm like he's trying to get like I could see he's trying to master something but what is it and then we went out this was all pre-COVID when you could go out and do things um and we went to to Timmy's which is our, our Tim Hortons we're Canadian everyone goes there and um he asked if he could do the buying of his muffin and I'm like okay and I gave him the money and he went and he did the whole social script it was may I have this here. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. <laughs> and he walked, and I was like, that's what you were learning the social script. Uh-huh. Of this. That was your, you know, engagement there. But I could see people were like, no, no, no. The forcing would have been, nope, they've got to learn their letters. They've got to do this. You've got to force mm-hmm. a sign. You've got to force the math. Don't sell it to him if he gets the math wrong. Yes. And I was like, that's where I think I see now your distinction of is more what I would view as not guided, but free play, but kind of being involved in it. I think it's just being involved and seeing what they're doing and going for it. If a kid wants to make a sign, great, but not everyone has to make the sign. You're not there yet. That's okay. My son, for the record, learned his letters and learned his numbers and it's not a, he didn't need to learn it at the store. He needed the store script so he could buy his muffins. That was where he was at. So it's really good to hear this distinction because I think you're right. It is. It's too different things being given the same term. And I have a follow-up question on that too, because I also wonder if that open free play that you're describing Mm -hmm. would be different if we had better multi-age group settings. And I ask that because I do think if you're sticking a bunch of three-year-olds together, even three and four, their play, they're not learning from each other. Right. But you suddenly put a group of three to eight year olds together, even as the teachers step back, at least what I've witnessed in these multi-age groups that we've been a part of, those kids are teaching and learning from others. I mean, good and bad, but it's all, you know, they're really engaged by those older kids being able to model these new skills or teach things because they can do things the younger kids can't. And do you think that would make a difference to that kind of free play where you're just opening it up if you had kind of older kids playing the role of teacher? I think they could. And I think because I think, you know, three year olds can learn from each other, but it's going to be different. What three year olds learn from each other is going to be a different kind of thing than what they're able to learn from an eight year old that maybe can serve, like you're saying, in this kind of more involved guided capacity like a teacher would because they have more skills that they've learned there at a higher zone of proximal development and all these things. So I think that could help. Um, I don't know enough about the research there to know exactly, but I, I think it's certainly a possibility that that could help as if you mixed up to have more older kids with these little, little guys. Okay. So then, sorry, going, that was my total sidetrack yeah. there. I apologize, but it was really interesting because I, I hadn't seen that research on the free play and the way I would have defined free play is exactly what you're describing as guided play. Yeah. And I would have described guided play as more of the, teacher focused, you know, involvement there. So getting that language right to understand, because otherwise it's all confusing. Well, and even learning that language and learning what it means. I mean, uh, the Vanderbilt um, 
was daycare. Now it's the Anchorage School. The Vanderbilt School for for infants through five. Um, they switched a while ago to this emergent curriculum that's very child focused and, and doing these things we talked about. Um, but it's been an, part of the challenge in adopting it has been getting teachers to understand kind of in this continuum of from direct instruction to complete open free play with no teacher involvement, like where they should ideally be sitting. And I think it is hard. I remember even times mm -hmm. myself with one child at a time being like, oh, I think I was way too overbearing and kind of mm -hmm. telling them what to do as opposed to letting them discover it and being there to support it and maybe offer another way to look at it. If you, mm -hmm. you know, oh, this isn't working. Oh, I wonder if I went and did this, what would happen there and letting them explore it themselves. It's really hard. It's not. And I yes. just, it's hard in part because I don't know about you, but my background as a student was that formal teaching all the time coming in and telling you what to do. So it's really difficult to kind of separate ourselves from what we had at that stage too. And I think with teachers, if that's how you've learned how to teach, it's really ingrained. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. It's not what a lot of us experienced, depending on how these teachers were trained. Um, a lot of places have or are moving towards kind of a, a pre-K through three or pre-K through five or even pre-K through, pre through eight certification in the U.S. And so in those kind of programs, there's, there's the majority of the time is not going to be focused on what's going on developmentally with a four-year-old um, by nature of what they need to cover. And so it's just really hard because if then you're not getting training in that space, I think too, sometimes depending on the elementary school, these pre-K programs are placed into in the, in the case here where a lot of them are in elementary schools. If you have a principal who's evaluating you, who doesn't think of that, if they see the kids digging in the dirt, are they going to think like, oh, she's not teaching or they, you know, they're not teaching them anything. They're just digging in the dirt. And I think this happens sometimes with pushback from parents too, um, I know it's happened at my daughter's school some, and maybe not the majority of your listeners, but I think in the broader public, you know, parents are like, they're supposed to be at school to learn. We've had this, we've talked about this broader emphasis that pre-K is essential to get them ready for kindergarten. They're supposed to be learning things. Otherwise, they're going to be behind in kindergarten. Now, you know, I'm worried about that. I've gotten that messaging. I, I don't see them learning their letters and numbers. So now, and even, even with the lens I have, I have sometimes anxiety that spikes up when I see another kid writing a whole sentence in my daughter's class or, you know, a younger kid who can do more things than she can. Of these, And I'm like, oh gosh, is she going to be behind? Is she already behind? Um, her school even to get ready for kindergarten said a thing that one of the questions was, can your child read independently yet? List three books they can read. And I was like, uh, no, which, you know, logically I can say like, that is not something she needs to be doing. And that's not a necessary skill. She's fine, but you do have this initial anxiety spike. So I think for teachers, teachers aren't always trained a lot of this. They're sometimes getting pushed from parents that have gotten this messaging that they need to be doing these academic skills. And if they don't see that, they get worried. So I think it's, it's hard. That, and it, I see exactly what you're saying. I've always had my bit of spike of anxiety at times when I see where my kids are at and I have to kind of keep it down. It's, I admit as odd as it is, it's really helpful. My daughter has dyslexia and it's helped because I just get to be like, nope, she's not going to be there. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be. And that's fine because you can almost other people are then willing to hang their hat on it, even though mm -hmm. sometimes some of the delays with my kids have nothing to do with it. Because it's more just me going, 
no, they don't need to know how to do that yet. Like my right. son They're is not there and they don't need to be. is abysmal, yeah. but he has no interest in doing the writing, but he taught himself to read. So cool. Mm -hmm. There you go. And can yeah. do some math. Like that's where he's at. And it's great. I'm going to celebrate what he does as opposed to trying to worry. But I, I still feel the anxiety sometimes when you see it and, mm -hmm. and others are ahead on this or, you know, but it is. And I think what you said is, the fear parents have, and I've seen it in friends of ours that are like, I sent my kid to, you know, we have junior kindergarten here, which is kind of like okay. a pre-K and it's, oh, they're, they're not doing letters yet. I'm not seeing any letters come mm -hmm. home. I'm not seeing this. And it feels like that panic of if they don't know their letters right now, they're going to do poor in kindergarten and then they're not going to go to university and they're going to live under the bridge. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, where did we go from here? <laughs> Cause your four-year-old can't read. Let's just step it back a moment here as we That's go right. it's they're going to be okay it's it's going to be it's not going to be because if they're not okay it's not going to be because they're not reading at four let's just right. start with that what i can't say they're going to be okay because i don't know but it's not going to be because of this so this is it's really interesting and i i love this idea of like shifting it so this kind of gets to another question i have here which is that it kind of involving the issue of socioeconomic status. This mm -hmm. program, you have to have a certain threshold and it's not a high threshold. It's, it's, you have to be under it to qualify for the pre-K program. We're really targeting these programs to those who are less advantaged in our society due to structural things that should really be the focus of the change, but that's a topic for another day. Um, but we see SES effects and this, I'm going back to, you know, something Jay Belsky brought up the other week was he was talking about this kind of differential susceptibility to early child care. And, you know, you see in lower income families, there's often a boost to what you saw initially in kindergarten, at least, and depending on later, a boost to cognitive development based on, on being there. But for kids who are in a high SES group, so we're not even talking about the pre-K, but just being in childcare when they're younger, you see a negative detriment. And he kind of likened it to the idea that, well, perhaps it's that the young, you know, the kids in the more impoverished environments, it's a more stimulating environment. And that is, you know, so you're getting that that bit up to help. It might be food security related. It could be all sorts of things, but there is an advantage. Whereas... The kids who are, you know, inherently from a, a more advantageous background, it's a step down in terms of what they're getting. And when I think about that, I just think, what does that say about these programs? And I'm going to go to the pre-K here. Like, what does it say more generally? If it's only good because something else is worse, is that a good program? And what then? should we be looking at to make these changes? Because obviously families need care. It's not like you go to work, yep. but you've <laughs> got to have the care. But again, I guess it goes back right back to what we were saying, but what is possibly the advantageous part for these kids when we're talking about SES? And what can we take from that in terms of, you know, these other programs you mentioned at the beginning that were far more intensive Maybe what are the components of those that might have been the result? Like we, they took the education piece of it, but it doesn't seem like maybe that was the piece that was having these long lasting effects. So what do you think about both pre-K in general? Is it something that needs to be 
offered or is more of a, I'm going to use the word daycare, but you know what I mean? I got daycare, a better option, or is it even something entirely different that would help these families? Yeah, it's such a great way to phrase that whole question and the whole issue. Um, I think one thing that's we've been thinking about, so again, Alvin Pierman did this great work with our sample, um, looking at the density of poverty in the neighborhood the students lived in when they enrolled for the program. And so there is some variability in our sample in terms of how, you know, what their income was, even though it's all qualifying for this, you know, statewide program, all low, what would be considered low-income households. Um, but he found that for students that came from the neighborhoods with the highest concentration of poverty, that they saw a positive effect of going to the pre-K program, speaking to what you're talking about. For students that were from low-income households but lived in neighborhoods that didn't have the same concentration of poverty, they actually saw a negative effect of going to the pre-K program. And so, you know, we think about this as like, what's your counterfactual? What would you be doing if you weren't and then we do this for all evaluation work. If you weren't in the program you're evaluating, what would you be doing instead? And then what does that mean? And so here it's like, okay, maybe if your alternative, like you're saying, is, you know, spending time with a loving grandmother where you're in a safe neighborhood with a well-resourced library with activities and a nice playground and all these things, maybe then this pre-K program becomes less necessary than if your alternative is that you're not in a safe neighborhood, it's more chaotic of an environment, you're not getting to have rich language interactions with a, you know, someone and that kind of thing. Um, so I think that is an important piece that we've seen in our data that's good to think about. Um, and you know, thinking about too what these programs look like, I think a lot of times the kinds of programs you're talking about that higher SES families sign their kids up for for pre-K, your Montessori's, your Waldorf, your outdoor nature school forest programs, um, they have some components that are probably going to be a little more similar to some of these earlier programs that showed effects um, that also sometimes had other wraparound services like health services or job training for parents. These things are, are not a part of, I mean, again, they're much more expensive. They're not a part of the, the more scaled up pre-K programs that we see now generally. Um, so I think, yeah, well, when we're thinking about these families from low-income households, it's like, okay, what would be the best thing to provide for an, as an option and it probably is similar things that higher SES families want as an option. And it's this program that that does have this more kind of what we call guided play, richer interactions with lots of good conversation going on, developing these unconstrained skills. And then maybe also does provide more of these wraparound services like help with, you know, health and dental checkups and that kind of thing um, that would benefit families that might not have those resources otherwise. Um, and also thinking about, I mean, like you're saying, the other thing, which gets me sometimes, I, I don't know a lot about Colorado's program, but they're starting a universal pre-K program. And just in one article that I read, um, there was someone quoted touting how this program is gonna be great for helping parents go back to work. But the program's 10 hours a week, which I think is partially because that's what like the cost they could afford. But it's like, okay, I don't know about you. I cannot do my job in 10 hours a week. That's not going to fly. I wish I could. I'd have a lot more free time. It would be great. But no, it's, um, no, you, you, that's it, right? That's the. Yeah. So, so I think thinking too about how, you know, different states have different models, but I think there is this promise of this mixed delivery system, maybe that other states have. Tennessee, you know, doesn't have it as much. Um and it's an empirical question where they partner more with community partners that maybe sometimes have more of a kind of child care center in terms of hours. They're open for the workday as opposed to, you know, 
a lot of pre-K programs are the school day or a half day. Um, so what the benefits would that be, especially if you could get a high quality program, what we consider high quality, where kids are getting those rich interactions all day long. Um, and maybe that, and, but again, it's more expensive. So it's, it's just hard because I think states are grappling with the budgets they have and the money that's been allotted to them, but thinking about how we could get some of these things, but it's going to probably cost some more money. It's actually raises the question we've, my husband and I have always talked about this just in, in politics here. There's the big debate over universal child care mm -hmm. being offered. And I admit I'm, for better or worse, I'm willing to be convinced otherwise. I am not a fan of all the money going when there's enough people that might be able to afford the higher quality. Like I'd rather target the resources we have to where they're most needed and I think, you know, you get to this universal one like Colorado, I don't know much about their program, but yeah, you can only do 10 hours a week because that's all you can afford. But what if you're only doing it for a fraction of the population? Could you offer 40 hours a week mm -hmm. and really make a difference to, you know, these group of people that really need it? And I, I think we get too caught up with politics, right? It's we want to please yeah. everyone, offer something for everyone when not everyone needs it. and you know, I, I certainly I think the cost, I mean, affordable child care for everyone needs to be something that we, that's a different, <laughs> yes. right? Issue I there. love some universal child care. That'd be great. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like that would affordable be. Affordable child care for everyone. Yeah. Exactly. That would be a, a different topic of what we, yes. but it is, you know, I think when we talk about these programs, kind of mixing them in for everyone, I just don't think it's not, kind of like what you just said, these different environments, what else are you doing that makes things, you know, better or worse, it's, I'll admit my kids did not go to pre-K. I've always worked from home and we've been able to map out like our schedules and it's hectic and crazy, but we've been able to do it. And I did have some help um, for my daughter actually, to be fair, while I was finishing my dissertation. Um, but it was her best friend's mom mm -hmm. was, took great. They were out at parks. They were at the library. They were at the aquarium. They were at the science center. Like I think about those experiences. It is, it's a rich variety of different things. And that's what we've done too. Like COVID was a little different with the kids because there wasn't yeah. much of anything. Um, but that is a topic for another day. <laughs> it's so yeah, it's what do we offer these families? And I think the health is such a crucial piece that goes into it, like you mentioning. And it feels like that's a piece that I know costs money, but feels doable. Like, I don't know. But when I went to, to school, my elementary school, we had our eyes checked every year. They came and did a little like dental check every, even though I went to the, but that was, you know, mm -hmm. We had that. That was just, it was a really easy way to get someone in to do all this stuff. And even when I was little, we got the older vaccines in the school. They came to the school and did them all. And it feels like such a great avenue to kind of, it, and it feels cheaper to do it this way too, because you just bring the medical side to this location and look, you've got access to all these kids. You're not asking parents to take time off work to try and get this stuff done who can't do mm -hmm. it. Like it, it's, it seems like it should be more feasible than it is. Yeah. And I think there's, there is some infrastructure. So um, some of the programs here, we're trying to start implementing that. And there, I think there were some challenges in um, getting the messaging to parents for them to understand what it was happening and what it was and to get the necessary forms back and things like that. So I think there is some startup struggle and challenge when you're 
implementing those things when they're they didn't exist before. But I, I mean, I I think it's worth it. I think it's worth the expense and the infrastructural challenge if you can actually get it up and running and help parents understand what it is and make them aware and get it happening in the schools. Because I mean, that that's been one of the right concerns about COVID is you know there's lots of things that happen in school like nutrition and care and these things that when school went away for a lot of kids. Um, that, that was a challenge, but it, it also provides this avenue where you have them and you could provide healthcare services and things if you had the resources. Yeah. I want to ask one more question about as we think about kind of how this all, all, the trajectory of how all this is happening. We've talked about the types of programs, all this stuff, but what do you think is the effect of the focus on academics in the elementary school stage on how this is being developed and, and ascertained? Like, you know, you mentioned earlier those other programs had lots of components. We've t- just talked about the health component coming in and the different ways of, of looking at these other skills. Is part of the problem this obsession with academics at a young age in elementary school that we're seeing? That if we actually did away with worrying about your kindergarten test scores, um, heck, grade three test scores, grade six, if we just did away with that, would we be able to get a more holistic view of what's needed in these early years? I think may, I mean, I think, cause we've, I think just in general, yeah. Like I think we could, we could use a little push up from pre-K actually into the other grades, but we tend to be getting some push down from the older grades into pre-K. I mean, if, if you think some about what kindergarten, at least in the U S what kindergarten used to be, it's much harder now than it used to be to find kindergartens with centers. A lot of them don't have them anymore. Whereas, you know, I'm not super old, but like when I was a kid, you know, that was, you had more of this play time with centers and things in kindergarten and that doesn't really exist anymore. And in part, probably because you've gotten this push down from older grades in elementary school. And there's this emphasis on these quote unquote academic skills that are going to be needed for testing. And there's lots of pressure on parents and educators, you know, to, to show improvement on those metrics. And so I, I get why it's happening, but I think, yeah, it's probably, if you wanted to look at it, like what's going to be best for their long-term development, that's probably not it. I mean, I think there's some real value that can happen from assessment, but I think thinking about like what those assessments are, when are you implementing them and what information is being given to teachers that they can actually provide action on. Um, I was talking with colleagues at a meeting a, while, a little while ago, you know, a lot of times some of the math assessments that they're given, give you this like at grade level below, you know, grade level above grade. And that's the kind of feedback teachers are getting, but they're not learning about the students really, you know, more specific math skills. Like she can do these kinds of things. Um, So it's hard for teachers to know what to do with that beyond ability grouping, which is, you know, that's a topic for another day. But so it's hard to, to be able to do this kind of finder grade differentiation that you really, as a teacher, probably ideally want to be doing with the information you get from the assessments that are being given sometimes. So I think because you have sometimes maybe these assessments that are too coarse and there's all this pressure around them. They're maybe emphasizing skills that in the long term are not these broader unconstrained skills that we really want to be getting to that, you know, maybe more related to, to what would be considered higher achievement as an adult. Um, you know, cre- what is it? Uh, the six C's from um, Roberta Glinkoff and her, Kathy Hirsch-Pasek. They're really great. They're uh, collaboration, communication, complex content, critical thinking, creative innovation, and confidence. Like those are the things we want to be instilling in pre-K and beyond. Like those are the the bigger fish that are going to probably get you some stuff. And I I think your question about, I mean, throughout school, but especially in these early years, you're getting this push down and this academic pressure, you know, that 
teachers and parents are feeling and the kids are, you know, then feeling too, which is probably not best long term. It it feels like there's this view now that if you don't learn it early enough, you're somehow never going to learn it. Yes. And I don't get it because I, again, I will date myself here, but I don't think I learned much of anything in kindergarten. I mean, well, you probably did, but it wasn't what's being called academic skills now. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. I did. I learned I didn't like my teacher because it was all in French and she was very mean. (laughs) Uh, My junior kindergarten teachers were amazing. They were (laughs) awesome. But um, yeah, kindergarten, Madame Elizabeth did not like her. Um, But that was, but half the time, I mean, I think about what I learned. I was in French immersion. She didn't speak English ever. I didn't understand what was happening for half the time. It was like, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know what's going on. I'm just going to sit here and maybe go play. But that was, <laughs> I think I'm playing, right? I'm not sure. But we learned everything, you know, like here we are. We managed to get PhDs. We managed to hold down jobs. We managed to, you know, raise families. Right. And, well, and again, I'm not like, you know, super old yet. I don't think, but um, you know what the expectation when I was little was that you know you should be learning by first grade and now and now more and more now we're seeing this expectation that you should be able to read by kindergarten by the end of kindergarten you should be able to read that's the new benchmark so it's gotten lowered you know in a way that maybe isn't developmentally appropriate and also like you said probably ultimately there's no research that suggests if I'm reading in kindergarten versus first grade versus second like you know you need to learn to read I think everyone agrees that's important but you know, does it need to happen that early? We don't have any evidence to suggest that that is true. Exactly. And I think that's, well, I, I still remember once, and I know it's just one and it needs to be replicated, but it was really interesting, the cohort study out of England, looking at the early reading on later um, reading comprehension. Mm-hmm. I and yeah, the earlier one, the earlier reading was rated with better reading earlier but lower reading comprehension in what was it, grade five, I think it was, mm-hmm. grade five or six. A later elementary grade, yeah. Yeah. And it does make sense because if you're spending mm-hmm. all your effort learning something outside your that, that you're not in the right zone of proximal development, you may learn it, but you're probably not learning it effectively. Yes. And those effective elements of learning are what's really crucial to doing well later. And I just look at my my daughters in grade five and we could have worried about what well, we did worry a lot of that anxiety of she's not here. She's not there. She's like, you know, what's happening. And by now I'm like, yeah, no, she's, she's pretty good. They're all kind of, you know, it, it levels out like what she was good at before other kids have caught up where mm-hmm. she was behind before she's catching up and you yeah. see it kind of map out this way. And I don't know where we lost that. I don't know where we lost the idea that, you know, we really, kids will get there sometimes in their own time. And sometimes their trajectory is linear. Sometimes it's curvilinear. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it, it's, you know, flat and then suddenly a spike up. But we we're really seem to be trying to get this one size fits all. And then that's mapping down further and further. My children would yeah. fail in school in the US right now. I just have to say like they would be. And then I think about the behavioral problems after. If you're young and experiencing not doing as well as you might other, what does that tell you like about yourself? What is the lesson that's coming to these kids down the line that they're not good enough, that they're stupid, that that what I I see that as a problem. So this kind of brings me to when we look at all this together, we look at the research you have, we look at the different types of programs, all this stuff, the, the effect of poverty, 
it feels like there's different take home messages for different groups of people that it, it can't be just one. Like we have our policymakers, we have our educators and we have our parents. Um, and then I mean the rest of society, but we'll just ignore them for now. Um, they need lessons too, because they're instilling half of this view, but <laughs> it really, those are the three key people in this. So what do you see as the take-home messaging for people when you look at your research that you're doing here and what your findings are? What are the key pieces that we need to be focused on for each of these three groups? Yeah, so I think for policymakers, I'll start there. I'm going to go down your list. For policymakers, I think our findings suggest, you know, we want to be careful, especially as programs are scaling up, like you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation. You know, as programs are scaling up, I think just to take a beat and think about, you know, especially a statewide program that's so big, what, you know, what is, what do these different classrooms look like? Are they adequately resourced? Are the teachers adequately resourced? Do these classrooms look like how we'd ideally want them to look? Um, and thinking about that, like, where are they? You know, like I said, most of ours are in elementary schools. Um, you know, is it thinking about when we're thinking, if we're thinking about scaling up or expanding or changing, you know, how can we maybe have some options in elementary schools, but some options in childcare centers or community partner kind of centers? Um, making sure when you're thinking about the requirements, which the state has been doing, but I think, you know, everyone can keep working on and across the United States, you know, it, are these classrooms in spaces that are developmentally appropriate? Do they have access to a playground, you know, that is the appropriate size for a little four-year-old, especially if, you know, you're in schools with a big range of ages, um, you know, do you have a four-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old appropriate playground, um, you know, making sure we have, we, we, I think we need better measures of quality at this age group that are scalable. I think that's a real tension right now because um, I get why they're using a lot of the quality measures they use right now to determine what's a high quality pre-K program, but I think they tend to be a little coarse, but that's what is easier to scale. So I think there's a tension there right now that people are working on, but you know, how am I evaluating a program to see whether it meets what we're going to consider collectively as quality do they have the appropriate playground space? Do they have an appropriate amount of outdoor or gross motor time built in because they need time to play? Um, and then where am I putting and funding those classrooms in the state? Um, so that's as a, and I think just taking those things really into careful consideration, you know, as we're expanding programs as a policymaker, because I think sometimes programs are put where there's space for them and it's logistically where they can easily go, but those may not actually be the best place to put those and use those resources. Um, so that'd be kind of my policymaker takeaway um, from our findings. Uh, for educators, it would be this message. And again, this is speculation. We don't have direct data on this from ours, but you know, thinking about how to help and support practitioners instilling this guided play that the way we define it, like what does that mean? What does that look like? How can you support teachers through coaching and professional development to make their classroom spaces have that kind of environment, even if they're in an elementary school or maybe the third grade classroom looks really different, but letting them know like that's okay that your classroom doesn't look like a third grade classroom, you're with four-year-olds, you know, supporting them in that um, and educators knowing that that's appropriate. That's what they, sh they should be doing. Um, and then I think maybe similar messaging for parents and knowing like, okay, when you're seeking out a pre-K program, if you are you know, what should you be looking for in a program? I would argue this kind of guided play environment. Um, I think there's a lot of emphasis sometimes put on these things like, oh, does the teacher have a bachelor's degree? How many years of experience do they have? Um, and some, I think this is from 2021, some work that came out showed that that wasn't really what was most, that's, those things weren't significantly predictive of students' later learning gains. 
It was um, the richness of the teacher-child interactions in the classroom. That was the thing that was predictive. So I think sometimes we can get hung up on these um, structural pieces of it that you know aren't necessarily bad. I don't think it's bad that teachers have a bachelor's degree or anything, but I just think there's other things you may want to focus on, um, like what, what kind of interactions are happening in that classroom. Do they have time for play? Are they going outside? Are they getting a chance to explore and be independent without a lot of whole group time? Oh, that'd be the other thing for educators. So I think sometimes it's hard, especially because we're getting pushed down from the older grades where I don't think it's necessarily the most appropriate thing either. Um, you know, we're sometimes seeing a way more whole group time than you would like in these classrooms. And really it would be, you know, you want to try to keep that whole group time, I think it's like 10 minutes or less. You know, even, even if you feel like you're switching topics, if they're sitting on the carpet in circle time for longer than 10 minutes, that's, that's probably too long for this age group. And to me, if you're sitting on the circle time, it's like, read a story. That's the, your time, a little bit of sing song, yeah. something, but get a story in there. Stories are wonderful for kids. They like them. They're fun, but yes. it is, it's, yeah, I, I love all of those messages. Cause I think it really is. And it has to happen across the board that the messages are taken in, because like you said, if the parents are pressuring the educators and the educators are being pressured to have it look like a third grade classroom and policymakers mm -hmm. aren't even considerate of what is best in terms of that. It made me think though, your, your point about the bachelors versus the interaction, that's easy to assess. It's yes. easy to have the check mark box, right? We can do mm -hmm. this. It's a, it's a check mark. It um, reminds me, I have someone I know used to work in, um, I mean, this is again, childcare, but goes up to for here up to, you know, age three, four and used to work on the licensing side of it, right? Like we've all talked about licensed childcare versus unlicensed uh -huh. and knew all the skills for rating the quality of everything to make sure they were licensed, has their own child and put them in an unlicensed childcare, uh, a very high quality, like outdoor based. Yeah. And when the kid was there, the staff said, you know, now that you're here, it would be great. You might be able to help us get licensed and we could do. And he just said, you know, the reason we're here is not licensed. <laughs> like I, I would really rather not help you on that path because what you're going to have to checkbox there is not what's best for the kids. Like it, it was about the interactions. It was about what they were doing that made mm -hmm. that place so great. And he's like, you're going to lose it because you're going to have to focus on two hand washing stations and X number of toys per kids. Yeah. And they wanted the less toys they wanted the like, and so it feels like we have these check marks because we can check it off. It's easy. You can count the number of toys. You can see that bachelors looking at the richness of the interactions. That's a lot more work to kind it's of do. It's really complicated. And, and people who have done it like really well with nuance, it's really expensive. So again, I, and I get it. I'm like, I, we live in reality, right? Yeah. Like I can make up a fantasy world <laughs> where I do all kinds of things, but we live in the reality where we have the resources we have. And so I think, yeah, that it, that is, like I said, something I know some folks are working on of trying to figure out how do we measure quality in a way that we feel really great about that we're capturing enough nuance that it predicts things like we are seeing it predicts things that we care about but that we can afford to do it and have the time to do it that doesn't require this intensive training with super intense amounts of observation time and these things that just like schools and states and they just don't they're not going to have it it's just hard would it not and this is just me thinking possibly in my little idyllic world too but be the point where once you understand what you're looking for you focus that on the training of mm -hmm. teachers as opposed to constantly having to measure and follow up. Because if all your teachers are trained, 
with that perspective, and that becomes a necessary part of teacher training, then you hopefully don't need to do the extensive, like you're still going to follow up and assess and make sure things yeah. are going well. But instead of having to do it, you know, this big with my hands showing really big, but you only do it this, you know, in kind of target areas to to test. And I feel like that's what places like Finland have done really well with. Yeah, is- I was going to say, I think that's a really good point. And other countries, I think, have figured that model out um, that we could learn from and borrow from in other places like the United States. Um, Cause I think that, I think that's right. I mean, especially cause of like, I talked about a lot of times people are coming. It's, I'm not trying to educate or blame at all. I mean, if you're training your certifications pre-K through five, that's a lot of span to cover and they, they're not going to be able to cover enough of the four-year-old and our programs often don't, in my opinion, this is not empirical. My opinion is that there's not enough time provided to really get experience in the field during a lot of teacher education programs. I know that they try, but it's still, I mean, so many of my friends who went into, you know, K-12 education, like they, they learned their first three years of teaching when they were in classrooms. That's really where they learned most of it. They, a lot of them did not, who went to a variety of programs, but a lot of them really, you know, good programs. They did not feel adequately prepared until they had a few years under their belt in the classroom. I have the same experience from friends up here that have done, that were teachers mm-hmm. or even just did the training, even if they didn't end up in the classroom after, but they were at high quality programs and very little time spent in the classroom. But also what you said, it's this range of you should be able to teach grade one and grade eight. Well, what? Mm-hmm. No, that's not <laughs> actually how it goes. You should be <laughs> maybe that's one really and two. That's yeah. Yeah. Like, these are skills that don't necessarily translate. I'm just gonna, you know, I hopefully shouldn't have to point that out, but apparently we do. <laughs> so, uh, well, thank you so much. This is so it's so intriguing, this research. And it is, it's kind of terrifying at times when you see, you know, how far into it we are. But it at least gives me hope that you mentioned that already Tennessee took the the third grade results to make some modifications and can hopefully, Mm -hmm. you know, follow up with any more that's needed. So in this realm, what are you working on now? What is, is this more of this or is it something else in research? Yeah. 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 So we're continuing to follow these kids through high school. Um, Our focus has shifted a little bit just because, you know, pandemic. So we're looking at kind of how, what kind of academic disruptions they've experienced and other life disruptions, how that has affected what's happening to them now as they go through high school. Um, So we're working on that now with this group. Um, And then also I have some work because of my interest in math focused on um, I'm part of the Developments and Research and Early Math Education, D-R-E-M-E, DREAM, um, network. But so we, you know, that crew, is, it's a really great network of folks. Um, we've been developing activities for center time that are, are fitting this kind of more guided play model um, to make good use of math happening during center time. Um, we're developing an application for an app for when um, principals or coaches go in to observe math in pre-K through third grade. Um focusing on what we would hope to see in a high quality math classroom. So like our students interacting in this kind of thing. So we've tried to make that into to an app format that they can use. So trying to think about ways of how we can um, help in these, you know, early year spaces to, to get to this high quality instructional experience of, you know, like what do we think kids need before they enter kindergarten? What do we think kids need, you know, before they get into later grades in high school, you know, it's probably not these basic skills. So what can we do to support practitioners and parents and in, in thinking about those things? So I love the idea of an app. Yeah, they open it up and then you're telling them what to look for. And that's, you know, instead of their own bias coming into what they expect to see, 
you yeah, can kind well, of guide them towards what they should be looking for. Yeah. And, and some of the practitioners we've talked, I mean, especially if you're an elementary school principal, you can't be an expert at everything. So some of the folks we've worked with, I mean, their training wasn't in early mathematics instruction. Like that's not what they were trained in. So sometimes when they're, they are like, sometimes they don't have a lot of fun when they're like walking around with a notepad or something, just being like, I don't know, that looks good. The kids are engaged or they're not. I don't know. Like it's hard because it's hard to be, an, you can't be an expert at everything. So we're trying to provide some structure, like you said, to say like, hey, these are some things that we know from research and other studies like seem important. So look for these things. Yeah. Even if you don't think they're important, trust us, they're important. <laughs> Are they actually moving around? That's good. We don't want them sitting all day. This is, ah. Uh, well, I am very excited to see what happens. And I'm very curious to hear your follow-up. I mean, I, I know COVID's been, you know, that disproportionate effects on, particularly when we start interacting with socioeconomic status and how that affects mm -hmm. things going down. So I am, I'm curious to see what you end up with there. But Thank you so much for this. This Thank has been you. wholly enlightening and a lovely conversation. Um, and I, I do look forward to seeing what you come out with next. Thanks. Well, this has been really fun. I appreciate your, your questions and, and insights, and it's been great. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that the findings of this study don't dishearten you, and I take comfort knowing that those in charge have already made changes to try and improve these outcomes. I also hope we can move towards models that are more geared towards children's development more holistically, rather than just academically. Now I'll be off for the next few weeks, but we'll be back in June. So in the meantime, please stay safe and happy parenting.